Apple presents events at the Apple Store. Let's start by taking a look at the trailer for Les Miserables. Stay here for tonight. I know who you are. You're Jean Valjean. Jean right, my girl. On your way. I had a dream my life would be. Help me, please. I have a child. So Where is your child? No life has killed the dream. One day more. Set. Another day, another destiny. Mademoiselle. It's never-ending road to Calvary. Where's the child, Cosette? Tomorrow you'll be worlds away. Who was that girl? And yet with you my world has started But he never saw me there One day more to revolution Bringing the pit in the bud We'll be ready for these schoolboys They'll okay. make themselves okay. with blood Welcome this afternoon's guest moderator, Kevin Poloi from MTV's Next Movie, and today's guest, Oscar-winning filmmaker, Tom Hooper. How's everyone doing today? Thank you for being here with us today. Uh, Tom, thank you for coming and, and, and chatting with us. Pleasure. Uh, so I'm going to ask Tom a, a few questions about, about Les Mis, and then later on we're going to open it up for, um, for a question and answer session with you guys. Uh, Tom, first of all, um, congratulations on this movie. It's, it's, it's been a, a great success. Uh, opened in, in theaters about a, a month ago. Um, a, a huge success, both commercially and, and critically. Uh, what, is the, the, what would you say is the most surprising reaction you've gotten to the film, uh, be it, be it you know, personally or, or, or in a piece of text? What, what, what has surprised you most among the various reactions that you've gotten to Les Mis? Um, well, the, uh, the strange thing about directing Les Miserables is just the kind of, is the, is the pleasure you take from having made people cry. And I feel like I've spent two years basically trying to make millions of people cry, and then the people come up to me and go, God, I just, I wept from the beginning, and you're, and you're like, yes. And <laughs> it's a slightly strange, it's a slightly strange, in most walks of life, you wouldn't be happy to have made 
millions of people weep. Like, that would make you a very bad man. Uh, but I think in this case, it's allowable. No, the, I, I think the, thing, the reaction that most surprised me has is, is been how people who are close to me who've been going through difficult times in their own lives have responded to the film. And, and a friend of mine had lost his father last October and was determined on seeing the film. And I said, you know, given the themes of the film, maybe it's not for you. It's going to be too raw and too tough. And he, he went to see it and I said, how was it? And he said, you know, the strangest thing happened at the end of the film. I felt better about my dad and I felt closer to my dad. And and there's there's something extraordinary about this this story that Victor Hugo created 150 years ago where it, it holds the mirror up to suffering in your own life or to those closest to you uh, and somehow manages to process some of it and make you feel a little bit more hopeful or a little bit better about it. Um, and and, it, and it, it does that old-fashioned thing which great stories do. It, it, it has a catharsis or an ability to, um, to make you feel better about uh, things that are tough in you. And I think that's, the, I think that's the, what, what's so special about the story. And we, and we, we cry in Les Miserables not just for the characters, but for the, for, the, for, the, for the echoes in our own lives or in those closest to us. And um, uh, I think the extraordinary, you know, for, for when you read the novel, the, the, the end of the novel ends on a statement about love where, where Victor Hugo says, to love or have loved, that is enough. That is the only pearl to be found in the dark folds of life. Um, and in the musical, the version is to, you know, to, um, to love another person is to see the face of God. And I think that the, the story is about how the one way we can navigate through the difficult times of, of life is, 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 is if we have love in our lives. One of the, the elements of the film's success and one of the, the elements of the film that has gotten a, a lot of attention, a lot of press, is the fact that you had your actors perform the songs live on, on set. Uh, has it come to the point yet where you, where you can look back at, at it and say, wow, I can't believe I pulled that off? Um, I mean, for, for me, I couldn't imagine ever doing it any other way. I mean, I, I, I find lip-syncing to playback... Um, you know, you know something very artificial about it, and it always, it often makes feel leaves me feeling slightly embarrassed when I watch sort of poor lip syncing. And and I didn't want, I didn't want you to have to forgive the movie for the lip syncing, and particularly when you're doing a, a sung through movie, and and you're, you know, it's two and a half hours of singing to be to be constantly uh, having to forgive the film for that lack of realism. I felt for for such a visceral story was not how I wanted to make it, and. Um, uh, but the other, the other and more important thing about live singing is, is not we didn't just do the singing live, we did the accompaniment live. So there was a pianist who was playing on an electric piano. Uh, the actors were hearing the piano in a miniature piece in their ears. There's no conductor. And what, what's perhaps more unusual in the way we made this is that, generally speaking, the actors are controlling the tempo of what they're singing rather than um, the conductor having to follow a, a pre-recorded music track. And so it gives them all that freedom in the moment that actors normally expect when they're doing a dialogue scene. So, you know, if you look at the end of Dream to Dream, the last line is, now life has killed the dream I dreamed. And Annie actually goes, now life has killed, and then she holds it and holds it and says, the dream I dreamed. And in that hold, you see her taking all her pain and making the decision to shut it down. And, and her eyes harden up, and you can see her killing that that last cl you know clinging on to the dream that she has and preparing herself to take another client and carry on as a prostitute and it's the most extraordinary bit of acting but it's made possible by taking 
the time. And in the score, there is no, there is no gap there. It's, you know, the, it, the score plays through that, and she puts a sort of eight, 10 second gap in the middle of the, the, the last line because it's live and because she can make those decisions and the, and, and the, um, the pianist is following her. And in the end, with acting, you know, the hardest challenge is to take dialogue you've been given and make it feel like you invented it. And the hardest challenge on Les Miserables is to take these globally iconic songs and create the illusion that your characters in, made this up in the moment. That, that you know that, that Annie, Annie's character Fontaine invented "Dream to Dream" as a, as a cry from the heart. That Eddie Redmayne invented "Empty Empty Chairs and Empty Tables," and and so much of the illusion of a character inventing dialogue rather than doing a rendition of it is is those little hesitations that tell you that someone's thinking live. I mean, the little hesitations I'm doing now when I'm talking to you that shows I'm I, I'm not. You know, doing something for a memory. I'm, 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 I'm speaking live, and um, th this, this, I think, as much as the live singing, make, makes it a much more uh, emotional form of um, storytelling because it allows the actors the control of the medium of time. If you're following a pre-existing piece of music, you, you have no freedom in time, and, and freedom in time is utterly key to acting. Well, let's see some of this uh, this process at play. We'll roll a clip from the film, please. Now, prisoner 24601, your time is up and your parole's begun. You know what that means. Yes, means I'm free. No. Follow to the letter your itinerary. This badge of shame will show it till you die. It warns you're a dangerous man. I stole a loaf of bread. My sister's child was close to death. We were starving. You'll starve again unless you learn the meaning of the law. Know the meaning of those 19 years. A slave of the law. Five years for what you did. The rest because you tried to run. Yes, 24601. My name is Jean Valjean. And I'm Javert. Do not forget my name. Do not forget me. Two, four, six, oh, one. Did Hugh Jackman enjoy the fact that he probably didn't have to shower for a few days before for taping the scene? I mean, the interesting thing about, about that clip is, is the lengths that Hugh Jackman went to, to to look like that. I mean, not only did he lose 30 pounds in weight um, in order to shoot the scenes of him being a convict, which he did prior, we shot that first, it, it, but before he shot that scene, he went on a 36-hour water fast, which means no water or fluids of any kind, um, so that his paper, you know, his skin became like tissue paper and just wrapped back on his skull. Um, and, uh, and then we, you know, cut his hair very savagely and add, added sort of the scars of, um, uh, of, of previous beatings. And, and the, what, what was great about it is I felt one of the challenges of the musical, for those who've seen it, is, you, you know, you go from this guy being a convict to the guy reinventing himself as the mayor of a town and a successful entrepreneur. And when I first saw the musical, I was kind of like, well, he's, he kind of looks the same. And so why does Javert not recognize him? And so I said to Hugh, your first challenge is to make yourself unrecognizable so that when you reinvent yourself, 
the, the storytelling is, you know, is solid that, that Javert doesn't immediately spot who, who they are. But, it, but it's also, and it, the, 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 this scene's a good example of how I, tr I try to combine both gritty realism and a, and a certain kind of uh, operatic or heightened staging in, in, in the scene execution. So in order to ground this, this idea of uh, singing as a, uh, to make it feel real, the, the the actors' appearances are, are you know in, are incredibly brutally real. I mean, we went further than maybe a lot of films do in, in creating this kind of prisoner environment. Um, and uh, but at the same time, you know, the staging with the with the boat behind and the way that the way that Russell's overshadowed by this you know the, this Hydra figurehead um, has a kind of heightened or magical realism to it. And and, and I was constantly directorially trying to n navigating this line between using realism to ground singing as real, plus also taking advantage of the fact that singing on film is a heightened form to allow myself to be more expressionistic visually than I might have in a, in a dialogue-driven movie. So that, that that became very important. And the other thing that's interesting in that clip is that you, you see how Hugh doesn't really look Russell in the eye and has a kind of slightly blank gaze. Um, this came out of Hugh, Hugh visited a, a number of prisons in the lead-up to the shoot in in England because I was because I'd, I'd made a, a prison drama called Longford a few uh, with Jim Broadbent and Samantha Morton a few years ago for HBO and I'd spent quite a lot of time visiting prisons and I noticed there was a there's something in a prisoner's gaze where they're completely alert but they appear to be not seeing so they don't catch your eye but they notice everything and and in relation to authority they there's a tendency to not look look at uh, look someone in the eye and 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 Hugh made a study of this and I think it's kind of extraordinary the way he's he sort of developed that demeanor um, based on his, his, his research he did. C considering the success that you've had with this approach, do you see other musicals, other big screen musicals following suit? Um, can you see this as, as sort of a, a game changer to see or, or standard operating procedure going forward? Um, I, I would hope it does change it, but I mean, I, you know, I suppose it does depend on the film. I mean, if you've got something which is very heavy with dance numbers and, and a lot of chorus work you know it, it, it may be less practical to, to do it live but um, for, for me uh, you know it, it, it makes the form more real and I, I remember the very first time I remember calling my agent Doug right at the beginning going I'm thinking of doing Les Miserables and he said that's great Tom but I don't happen to like movie musicals and I kind of meant God there are all these people out there who just on principle, are not going to want to see this film, and how do I how do I break down that barrier? How do how do I make the form more democratically open to even people who don't think it's for them? And I, and I'm convinced that doing it live m makes it more realistic and, and embraces those people who, who who might be a bit tentative about going to a movie musical. Great. Let's show another clip from the film. Yes, it's true. There's a child, and the child is my daughter. And her father abandoned us, leaving us flat. Now she lives with an innkeeper man and his wife, and I pay for the child. What's the matter with that? At the end of the day, she'll be nothing but trouble. And there's trouble for all, and there's trouble for one. While we're running our daily bread, she's the woman that ran to the butter. You must send the slugs away, or we're all going to end in the gutter. And it's all still after I might have known the bitch could bite, I might have known the cat had claws, I might have guessed your little secret. Ah yes, the virtuous Fontaine, who keeps herself so pure and clean, you'd be the cause, I had no doubt, of any trouble here about. You play a virgin in the light, but need no urging in the night. I just didn't love it. 
having a mess. You did nothing but trouble again and again. You were sack at the door. Sack the girl today. Right, my girl. On your way. Monsieur le maire! Monsieur le maire! Monsieur le maire! Hey! Hey! Monsieur! Anne Hathaway, of course, also endured a remarkable physical transformation for this film. Can you talk a little bit about what she brought to Les Mis? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Anne was very conscious that. Um, she was trying to capture the descent of a character that went to a place that's so far beyond her own life experience that she wanted to do anything she could to give herself some kind of insight into this, uh, into into what this kind of suffering must be like. And and one of the things she was very committed to was doing a kind of sudden weight loss, so that when when Fontaine ends up dying, you see a sort of physical change happening in her. But also, I I. I I understand from her that, the, the, you know, because what she did was quite hardcore, arguably way more hardcore than I would have um, recommended. Um, uh, in fact, I spent a lot of time trying to kind of tempt her with little, uh, little bits of food to hope I could break down her will. Um, uh, but 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 what it, it it did give her a kind of, I suppose, a level of daily suffering in that ritual that 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 gave her some kind of connection point to the suffering in the character. And also, she she cut her hair for real live on camera. Um, which for, uh, you know, I suppose, uh, I don't think either of us realized how emotional it would be for her to do that. But again, it was something that she could do to help. You know, uh, there were three things that in that journey, um, you know, losing your teeth, cutting your hair, and being forced into prostitution. Obviously, the only one that was practical to do <laughs> was the first one. We're in New York, so I have to ask you a very New York question. There is a classic episode of Seinfeld, I know you guys know what I'm talking about, where George Costanza gets the song Master of the House stuck in his head. Shooting this movie, was there that one song that you just could not get out of your head? Um, I, I remember when, you know, when, I, when I was considering directing it, and it was while, I was doing, while I was promoting the King's Speech, and I spent six months traveling around with the film, and you know to be honest i was i was i was i was quite i was i felt like i was being drawn to it like a moth to a flame because i could see how hard it was to adapt but at the same time the music just got in my head and it and it would almost became like a delirium where i would wake up at three in the morning the music's in my head i'd wake up in the morning the music's in my head and i, I did get to point of thinking you know will this ever go and and after a year and a half yes i finally got peace and it finally left and um i won't say this to the composer but i was quite i was quite freed by the fact because it's so addictive the music it's quite extraordinary after you know only a couple of times it's just there and and it is the most amazing score that claude michelle created uh, but the answer is everything i mean there wasn't one tune it just when one left another came in you mentioned the the king's speech for which you won an oscar for a couple of years ago uh, you, you've worked in this business for, for well over 15 years uh, across many mediums. Had your first real big, big screen success with the, with the King speech. Uh, what did you learn from, from that experience and also that success that you were able to apply to, to Les Mis? I, th I think I learned that, I mean, I don't know whether it's the same growing up here in America, but, but growing up in London, I, I, I always felt that there was, I was told there was a division between high and low culture, that, that, that there was what the mass market liked, which was kind of crude and not to be artistically respected. And then there was the kind of, you know, the, the art house, art film, literary scene. And, and 
I, I, the, the, the thing that I found very inspiring in my life was working for HBO where they, they felt they were making commercially you know, successful television that, that, that is very popular, but, they, but, they, but they, they looked up to their audience. They, they, they assumed the best of their audience rather than assuming the worst of their audience. Um, and I think what I f when I made The King's Speech, I, I did it very uncompromisingly. I, I wasn't trying to make a popular film. I wasn't trying to make a commercial film. I was trying to be as true to this story and to the spirit of this time um, in, in actually quite an uncompromising way. I mean, I was, uh, you know, the specificity, whether of, of accents or look or locale, um, nothing, nothing we, not, no decision I made was about reaching after being commercially successful. And the great irony was, is the film had this extraordinary commercial success. Um, uh, I mean, beyond anyone's wildest dreams. And I, and I suppose it, it, it taught me that the, that the way to get to the universal is often through the specific. You can't, you can't, you can't try to make a universal story by being general. It's, it's, it's through creating characters that feel so real that somehow through that then we see the larger themes and the connections in our own lives. But, 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 I, but, I, but, I, but I hope it encourages, you know, in, a, in a tiny way, filmmakers coming through not, not to feel that there's commercial filmmaking and there's, you know, quality filmmaking that, 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 that the whole point, beauty of filmmaking is to tr try to combine your own values and, and do it in a way that's popular enough to get your money back. And you also succeeded in making people cry with the, with the King speech, which now we know you, you enjoyed that as, as well. Uh. <laughs> um, yes, the, the, my, my addiction to making people cry started there. Where do you keep your Oscar, by the way? Um, Oh, by my TV. It's not very, not very interesting answer. It's not, it's not in my loo. <laughs> All right. Let's let's roll another clip from the film. And then we're going to open it up to the audience for some Q and A. A heart full of love. A heart full of song. So I'm doing everything all wrong. Oh, God, for shame, I do not even know your name. Dear Mademoiselle, won't you say, will you tell? My name is Marius Pontmercy. And mine's Cosette. Cosette. I don't know what to say. Then make no sound. I am lost. I am found. Okay, let's take some questions. Yes. I'm just wondering, what is it like working with Helena Bonham Carter? She seems really fun and creative to work with. Um, it's quite as fun as it would appear to be. Um, I did. I, this is my second film. I did the King's Speech with her, and um, uh, I now feel kind of obliged to cast her in every movie somehow. Um, she is the queen, after all. So you don't really say no to the queen. Um, she's. Very, I mean, what's good about her and why I wanted her, why I wanted her in 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 Les Miserables? She's extremely good at at finding making comedy feel grounded or humour feel truthful. And, the, and the, there's a lot of humour in the King's Speech, but you know, you never felt that she was reaching for it or being arch or being knowing. Um, and and I felt that 
particularly acting with Sasha, who, who comes from more of a, you know, uh, a comedic background rather than acting background. I thought, I thought she would help ground Sasha and, 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 and make sure he didn't go too nuts. I know that Helena Baumgart is in both movies, but here's the question. For Tom, how do you compare actors like Anne Hathaway, Hugh Jackman, Russell Crowe, and Les Mis to uh, Jeffrey Rush in The King's Speech? Uh, well, I compare them on the basis of being Australian, um, in that Hugh, Hugh Russell and, and Jeffrey are all Aussies, and I'm half Australian, so I have a certain predilection to casting Australians. I mean, I cast an Australian to play Edward VIII. Guy Pearce played the king, in, the English king, in, um, which I'm not sure an English director would have ever thought an Aussie could, could capture that. Um, uh, I, I, think, I think actually wh what I would say is that they're all actors who bring a lot to the, to the process. Um, and if I've learned one thing uh, over the years directing, it's if you cast really brilliant actors, for God's sake, listen to them, because they will, they will arrive on set every day having thought more about the, their character than you've had the time or the, the, the ability to do. And they will, they will always ha they'll always have great suggestions. And you have to obviously filter the suggestions and take the best ones. But I mean, Russell was particularly brilliant at being a partner in storytelling. I mean, um, the, the end of Javert is the great challenge of how to set it up. And there's, there's a scene, for those of you who've seen the film, where Russell puts a, a, a medal on the, 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 the dead body of Gavroche, and that was, that was Russell's idea, and he, he felt that it, there was something sacred about the death of the child that cuts through everything else and st allows the process of unhinging to start in Javert's brain, which leads to what happens to him. Um, so I, I suppose that the thing that really connects them is that they're all people who, 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 who bring a lot, uh, I suppose, as partners in storytelling, not just actors. I'd like to ask, what activities in your early career were the building blocks to build up uh, the career that you have now? Um, thank you. Well, oddly enough, I, I owe my career partly to the musical because at the age of 10, I was cast in the school musical. Um, and two years in a row, I acted in a musical and, and I fell in love with acting, in love with drama and theater, and I knew this was gonna be my life. I also, made the key realization that I shouldn't be an actor. Because I, I was at a school of 300, I kept getting cast in the chorus, I could never get a decent part. And I thought if I can't get a, you know, a decent part in a school of 300, I probably shouldn't you know, go and compete with a million contemporaries. Um, why I was that strategic as a 12-year-old slightly freaks me out when I look back on it, because there are a lot of old actors who are a lot older than that who don't you know, come to that kind of realization or take a while to do it. Um, but but th th that coincided with falling in love with the backstage world and what the director did, and, and um, it was picking up a book on filmmaking one day and reading it cover to cover that got me hooked, and I, I started making films at the age of 13 on a, on a clockwork 16-millimeter Bolex clamor. And what I find extraordinary, particularly sitting in the Apple store, I mean, you know, the iPhones that probably almost all of us have, have a 2K HD camera with sync sound. So we can all be movie makers now. You know, all our laptops come preloaded with editing software. Every, every one of us can participate in this process in the way that every one of us can pick up a pen and, and write or write at a word processor. When I started, and it's not that long ago, you know, I, it was so complicated. I mean, I, I, I had a budget of 25 pounds, so $40. For that, I could get 100 foot of film, which I ran at 16 frames a second, which squeezed out about four minutes, and I made a two and a half minute movie uh, with a clockwork camera. And, and my teenage years, I was a silent filmmaker because I couldn't afford sound. 
And, and I, I, I'm, I'm amazed at the profound technological shift in, 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 in my short lifespan, which has gone from directing being a, you know, a, a very tricky thing to pull off to being a completely democratized art form. So we won't be seeing any Tarantino-esque uh, cameos by you in your films, huh? Um, I, I did once uh, make a cameo in Elizabeth I where I served uh, fish to um, Helen Mirren and Jeremy Irons on a platter. Hello, I'm a film student at New York University. I just wanted to say, first of all, you're truly an inspiration, so thank you very much. Um, my question for you is, you're, uh, you're a master of directing dialogue, but what challenges did you face when you're dealing with actors that are singing in rhyme and also having to worry about breath control and tonal quality and all that? Um, well, well, first of all, th thank you for what you said. And, and uh, yeah, first of all, it was a lot about training. I mean, I mean Anne... Hathaway, six months before we started shooting, was work was working on how to produce the belt voice, which is that the powerful end of the voice, while keeping her face absolutely still, and because she intuited from the beginning that the great challenge of this was how to serve the score musically, while making it work in a, in a cinematic close-up, so that she she had the necessary minimalism that film acting required. I mean, she also used to practice crying and singing, because she knew that when she sang Les Miserables, she was likely to cry. And she didn't want to discover that she couldn't hold the pitch of the, the tune if she cried. And she wanted to have that control while still have that emotion. Um, uh, so they, they, they did a huge amount of training. I mean, Hugh Jackman did a one-man show on Broadway before, partly because he thought, if I'm doing eight shows a week for three months, I'll be able to sing every day you know, for, for 12 weeks on set. Um, but I, th I think the, the thing that you embrace with live singing is is the reality is is the reality that goes with being live, which is that you know that there may be the odd note that's not perfect in a, in a performance that's so powerful that you that you that you want to embrace it, and and um, you're embracing both the rough edges with 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 the power of it. Um, and I and I was I was very struck working in post production at Abbey Road, the great recording studio where the Beatles recorded, and the recording engineer saying, Tom, you do not understand how rare it is in our lives now to ever deal with singing voices that are, the, that are the raw recordings, because now everything is you know, taken through CDAR or auto-tune, or, or, you, you, or you comp a hundred different takes together, so there's a word from each take. And, and they, they, you know, the, these guys would say, you can do that and you can, you can arrive at perfection, but it's always at the loss of some kind of integrity or some kind of emotional power. And, and that's what I found. Even, I mean, I did play around with some of these softwares, and they added something, but they would always take away something, and they, they would always take away a certain rawness or a certain immediacy. Um, or a certain kind of a, a vulnerability, often often it was a vulnerability in the voice that, that would be lost. Uh, so if you embrace live singing, you, you, you embrace the fact that people's voices are different and you embrace a, you embrace a range of voices, but you also um, get the immediacy and the vulnerability. I read that you made your first movie when you were 13 about a runaway dog. Who owned the dog? Was it hard working with the dog? And are there any lessons that you learned from that first movie that you now apply as a grown-up filmmaker? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, I was obsessed with having a dog as a kid. And the one great failure of being able to sell an idea to anyone in my life is selling to my parents the idea that they should get me a dog. I was I never broke through the wall. Um, so my cousins owned this dog, and, and I was obsessed with this dog. And, and I, they, they, my cousins lived in the countryside, and we used to spend 
hours chasing this bloody dog over fields because it, when it ran away, it would just run and run and we would just run after it. Um, but I think, I think actually the thing I learned from it was I got, I got very stuck on what should I do first? Like, this is my first film and already I was arguably a little pretentious and thought it was terribly important what my first film was. And my mum gave me great advice. She said, just make, just pick any story and don't worry, you know, don't try and make it the, you know, the most important thing ever. Just, just start and just start directing. And um, I, I remember after the King's speech thinking, God, how do I follow this? You know, this is such a pressure. And the end, I thought, I've just, I've just got to start. I've just got to find something I love. It may not, I, I may not ever know whether it's the best thing I could have done. Um, but, but it reminded me of that story of Runaway Dog that you've just got to keep directing and keep working and, and not get too paralyzed by the idea that the story has to be somehow the best story you can find because there is no such thing, really. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Great. Uh, I was actually in the first generation of the musical uh, for 18 months, so wow. I want to thank you for bringing it to the film, first of all. Um, you talked earlier about the actors being able to sing in real time. What kind of challenges did that produce um, when you actually went from just the accompaniment to adding the full orchestrations later? Um, well, it's interesting because, you, because you're in the show, you'd, you'd know that actually giving that much control to the actor in terms of tempo is unusual even rel relative to a musical where you have the conductor driving the train and making a lot of the decisions about tempo for you. Um, there were two challenges. One is that you had to accept as a director that if, if each take had its own tempo, because the actor would make different choices each take or be exploring it, you couldn't necessarily cut one take with another, which means every, in every take you needed to get all the shots you needed, which means you had to shoot everything multi-camera. So, so we work with three cameras every day, up to six cameras, so that e e and, and we, treat, we treated each take as a kind of self-contained event where we get all the shots that we might need. Um, uh, and, and that was what was quite exciting, was also to, this, this, to know that every scene had to be performed as a flow from start to end, because musically, it's not a good idea to do a verse here and a verse there. Uh, so I, in the edit, I mean, I, I was editing a you know, two and three quarter hour, three hour assembly edit with a piano track. I mean, the entire film was to solo piano, and I actually quite liked it. I mean, it was very, it was very intimate. Um, and then, and then, and then, basically, that piano part was turned into a tempo map with clicks. Uh, and then a conductor learnt all the shifts in the clicks and the tempos. And then, and a wonderful orchestra then recorded, hearing the click, hearing the voice of the singer, and having the conductor to guide them. Um, and this was the process that I'd been warned was where it was all going to fall down and my great dream was going to collapse because an orchestra wouldn't be able to play it. And the really interesting thing was whenever the, whenever the orchestra found it tricky, what you needed to say was follow the actor's voice. So forget the click, forget the conductor, just listen to the actor. And, and it was amazing how any knotty turns in the, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the tempo change, they'd always find a way through when they just concentrated on, on the performance. Hi. Um both the King's Speech and Les Mis were actually are adapted from other things, but you have such a distinctive style in their in your films. So, as a filmmaker, how do you pick like what to adapt creatively, and then what to hold true to the original? Um, I mean, I think I think first of all, for me, it's a process of trying to work out what I can fall in love with. Because unless unless you're passionately in love with the story you're telling. I, I, I don't know if you can do a good job. It requires such obs obsessive attention to detail and you need to put so many hours and do nothing other than that and eat, drink, you know, breathe it. Um, but I think in this case, 
it, it was interesting because I had the, I was having the extraordinary opportunity to to adapt the the, the screenplay with the original creative team who created the musical. So I was working hand in hand with Claude Michel Schoenberg, who composed it, with Alan Bublil and Herbie Kretzmer, who wrote the lyrics. Um, and I I, th I I think that gave me a tremendous respect for the original because when you're actually when when they're actually sitting next to you, it's it's you know you you, you really have to think about every change. Uh, but the best thing was that they were very. They were in remarkably open, and I think Claude Michel said, "This is this. I wrote this 30 years ago. I, I, I you know, 25 years ago, I was very precious. I'm not precious about it anymore." Um, and they were surprisingly flexible. But for for me, the gu the guide was it was always about storytelling. I mean, I, I went to see the show two and a half years ago, and I just thought about every time the story made a jump I didn't understand every time I was confused, every time I was not emotionally in it. And I, and I thought about every single one of those moments and took note and started to think about how I could restructure the film to take, to take note of what I experienced watching the musical. Uh, and, a, and a good example would be the movement, moving of Dream to Dream in the show, Dream to Dream happens just after the factory. And, the f and I, when I saw Les for the very first time, I wasn't that moved by Dream to Dream because I didn't really know Fontaine. And so I, I, I wasn't ready to really invest with her story. And, and out of that notion of could we move it somewhere else came this new idea of putting it later. Um, uh, so uh, for, for, for me, it's, you know, it starts you know, and ends with the story. All right. Thank you guys so much for joining us today. Thank, Thank you, Tom. If you can give it up for Tom Hooper. Go see Les Mis if you haven't seen it yet. Uh, if you have, see it again. Thanks, Tom.